Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, and how are we doing today? Happy Mother's Day. Thanks. Um, so I think I spoke a couple weeks ago, and there's about seven feet of snow outside. Um, and I, at the time, did not believe that we would ever get out of this. But here we are. There's, how many of you still have snow in your yards? Yeah, okay. So there's still some out there. But, I mean, we're doing all right. I think this week coming, we're supposed to have 18 degrees, so I think this will be the last of it. Can you knock on wood from the front of a Christian church? That's like a weird superstition. Um, okay. Well, good morning. I am Steve, Steve Bill, not Steve Mills, as uh, Vincent said, and I get to share this morning with all of us, and uh, it's, it's an honor always to do so. Um, but maybe before we begin, let's, let's say a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful this morning for this opportunity to gather, um, to quiet our hearts, to listen to your word, to be challenged by uh, what you've placed on my heart. And uh, Father, I pray that we would receive whatever each of us needs to receive this morning, that we would be encouraged, challenged, um, ultimately built up as individuals and as a community as we seek to continue in, in the good work of doing your kingdom work here in Thunder Bay and wherever we may go. Um, and so I leave this in your hands this morning, Jesus. Amen. Well, I would like to start by reading uh, in our Bibles, Luke chapter 3. We're going to take a look at the story, the beginning story of uh, John the Baptist. I'm going to begin with sort of the first half of the story. We're going to pause, talk about it, and then later on we're going to talk about the second half. Um, and this, this passage came, uh, I was actually listening to another sermon on this passage and, and on a run this week, and I was like, yeah, this is the kind of stuff we need to talk about in our community as well. And, uh, and so I, I trust that God will use these words and, and, and this passage and these, this teaching to, um, to really encourage us this morning. So John chap- or Luke chapter 3, and uh, starting at verse 3, says this, John the Baptist went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. And let's just stop there um, for now, and we'll, uh, we'll pick it up in a bit. 
Uh, but just to provide a little bit of context. So we've got this prophet, John the Baptist. Most of us are quite familiar with, with who John is. Um, and he's, you know, this wild dude who's living out in the desert and he eats locusts and wears, uh, what was that sash that he wore? And all the pictures like made out of animal fur. <laughs> Sashel. <laughs> uh, and he's got this message of what he calls uh, repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And so the people are intrigued by this message, and they are coming out to the Jordan River in droves, and they are being baptized. Um, I think Matthew talks about, uh, it says, all of Judea came out to listen to him. Now, all of Judea is a lot of people. That's probably an exaggeration. But even if just a few, you know, 5 or 10% of it, that's still thousands of people came out to listen to John the Baptist. So this guy is having an impact with this new message that he's proclaiming to these Jewish people. Uh, he's baptizing them, and the religious leaders of the day are paying attention to this. Because John is coming onto the scene, and he is uh, proclaiming a message that essentially is undermining the message that these religious leaders have been pumping out their, their entire lives. And that their ancestors and so forth, all the way back to Abraham, have been, or all the way back to Moses anyway, have been um, proclaiming. And so this message that John has is essentially, it's a, it's, a, it's a call to repentance. And it's a call to forgiveness of sin. And walking in a new way. And these religious leaders, Matthew, Matthew's version of this story, uh, when Luke says in verse 3 that the, the crowd came out, um, he, Matthew actually qualifies it and says the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the people in charge of the, the temple system came out to find out what all the fuss is about this John and this message he's proclaiming. Because to them, they, they had a message of forgiveness and repentance already, right? And, and it took place at the temple uh, involving the sacrificial system. Um, so they're, they're a little bit curious as to what's going on here with John, uh, you know, dunking all these people in the river. This is a strange thing going on. Um, and especially as they look around and they see the people are coming out in droves, they're, they're interested in this and they are eating up this message. They love what John is saying because he's pointing to an entirely new way of dealing with their sins. And it doesn't have anything to do with the temple system. It, it, it completely undermines the temple system. Because John is preparing the way of the Messiah, right? He's, he, he's making way for the coming Messiah. Um, and so these religious leaders, uh, John has a name for them. As he sees them kind of coming down uh, the road toward the Jordan, he calls them a brood of vipers, which is not a compliment. Um, he, he's not thankful that they're there. Or he's not, I mean, he might be thankful, but he's not saying, hey, everybody, let's take a look at these guys. These guys are wonderful people. He, he you know, just like Jesus, uh, Jesus' strongest words have always been held for the religious leaders of the day, the people who were supposed to know the truth and the way of living and the way of God's heart and his grace, and yet constantly over and over and over again got it wrong. And John's, uh, John, so he calls them a, this brood of viper, and he knows what they're all about. He knows that they're not there to get baptized and to kind of follow the rest of the crowd in this new way of living. He's, he knows that they're there to find a problem with what he's saying, what he's doing. 
and they want to criticize and perhaps even shut down what this whole thing is going before he, you know, collapses the entire uh, temple system that, that uh, they, they stand on. And so John's got words to them. And this is what he says in verse 8. He says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Well, what's he getting at here? What what does this mean? Because this is a little bit of a, a loaded statement, I think, that John is John is saying. He says, we have Abraham as our father. That Again, he's, he's pronouncing what the Jewish leaders are thinking, right? Well, first of all, let's keep in mind that these religious leaders, this crowd that he's speaking of, they're not just uh, religiously Jewish people. They're also ethnically Jewish people, correct? And that means... You know, they are Jewish by way of their ancestry all the way back to Abraham, which means there's clout there. They've got privilege or security or there's a sense of assurance or all these things that put them in right standing with God. So by virtue of their association with Abraham, they believe they are fine with God. Remember that phrase that we often see in the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is a phrase that's often used um, as a, uh, a connotation of association, of belonging, right? Abraham is in our ethnic lineage, and he was considered the one true God. So we are children of that one true God. So produce fruit bearing uh, in uh, keeping with repentance. John, you don't have to worry about us. You know, we, we've got it all covered. We're children of Abraham, you know, don't mind us. He gave us the Torah. We've been following the law. I think, we're, I think we're fine here, John. Thank you. But John is calling them out on that assumption. He knows that this is what they're thinking. And before, he gets a chan- before they get a chance to express it, he says, don't even think about it. It's not going to work. Something new is happening amongst us right now. There's a new system of forgiveness. There's a new system of repentance, of turning away and living a different way. And it's not going to do to fall back on your upbringing or fall back on your ethnicity or your rule following from all these years back. Uh, The faith of your ancestors isn't going to carry you through in this new system, this new way that I'm announcing. And I like how Andy Stanley puts it. Andy Stanley is a a preacher down in the States, son of famous Charles Stanley. Um, And he frames this for our modern day church context. He says... uh, he kind of helps bridge uh, a bit of a cultural bridge between this conversation taking place on the banks of the Jordan and our situation today. He says, you know, the equivalent would be for you and I, but I'm a Christian. I've gone to church my whole life. I've accepted Jesus as my savior. I believe all of the right things. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up Christians. Whoa. Now that's a little bit different, isn't it? When we hear it in this, when, we're, when it's framed this way, right? It's easy when it's the Jewish people because they're not us. And so we can criticize them all day and we can and, and find fault with them and we're like, yes, and nod our head and stuff. But when we turn that back and say, actually, what it would look like for you and I in that same context would be Jesus calling us out on the very same thing. 
And how many of us, if we're honest, have had moments where we can actually relate to this crowd, to these religious leaders, where we are resting on the laurels of our past, what we've always believed, how it's always been. Resting on one's laurels. Now, that, that's an interesting phrase. I looked it up. Anyone know where it comes from? Anyone have a guess where the, the phrase resting on one's laurels comes from? No ideas, huh? I didn't either, so that's fine. Um, but it comes back, it dates back to actually the Greek and Roman traditions where victorious Olympians or generals would wear these crowns made of laurel wreaths, right? As symbols of the victories and their war, their conquests, things like that. And having won a campaign, a Roman general could spend the rest of their careers savoring their past successes, basking in the memories of former glories. You see how we get that sense today? We understand what resting on one's laurels means, right? That's, it's this idea that, like, oh, I've done all this stuff in the past, so I should be able to enjoy the fruit of my labor now. And that got me thinking. I wonder if I'm guilty of resting on my laurels. And what might that look like for, for me, for us? And that prompted a follow-up question as I read this passage. How much of what's wrong with the church today, of the issues that we can all point to in the church today, stem from the sort of collective resting on our laurels of the way things have always been or the way things were, right? You know, the I've gone to church my whole life laurels, right? Or, or um, I believe all the right things about Jesus laurels, or I tithe 10% laurels. I've always followed the rules, laurels. And there's a potential for resting on laurels all over the place in our Christian lives. And it's easy to get into a mindset of, hey, you know, I've always done this right, therefore I'm entitled to this. Or I should be able to do that, or God will bless me in this way because of what happened here in my past, or because of where I went to church, or, you know, I was baptized properly, or I, I believe the right things, all these things. And we don't need um, a new system of forgiveness. You know, we're, we're children of Abraham. We are followers of Jesus. We don't need whatever it is you're offering. And I'd like to be a little bit blunt with us this morning. Um, I've had in the past, I would say four to six months, a number of conversations with many of us in this room and uh, in our community. And in those conversations, there have been a few common threads that just kind of keep coming up. And, you know, fair enough, there, there may be no connection with any of this in, in your mind, and, and that's possible, and I think that's amazing. Um, and I'm not saying it's just this community. I would say that the church in general has uh, struggles in, the, in these three ways that I'm about to mention. Um, but if you don't find resonance with them, that, that's fine. Um, you know, you can appreciate that others in, around you might. Um, that's cool. But I know these things are so because I have seen them taking root in my own life. I've seen them in my home, in my life, and in, in the people I surround myself with. Um, and with each of these... I'm starting to think that 
one of the core causes, and hear me say this, this is not the only cause. There are, these are multifaceted, multi, these are complex issues. Um, but one of the core causes for these three challenges or issues that I've kind of been observing in our church has been a collective sort of resting on our laurels. And again, before I say them, I apologize for stepping on any toes here. But the first one is a form of consumerist Christianity, right? And I think I have a slide for that. Yeah, this idea of what's in it for me. You know, I go to church to find out how am I going to benefit from this. Uh, my whole faith system is essentially how am I going to benefit for it. Every decision is made with this, how do I gain from this? right, mentality. And of course, we don't do this on purpose. We live in a world that, uh, a, a culture that teaches, you know, look out for things that meet our needs first. And so it's really hard to suddenly just stop that flow of living in expectation for my needs to be met as soon as, soon as we walk into a church. Inside and outside of the church, we often find ourselves frustrated when things don't go in the direction that we hope they'll go in. Or our needs aren't being met in the way that we expect them to. And there's a sense of entitlement that creeps in, like a thief in the night. The idea of superiority with the Jewish leaders here saying, you know, we have Abraham on our side. We're fine. He's our, he's our father. As my particular privilege has afforded me these rights. So that's the first one. The second one is what I think is spiritual fatigue. Have you experienced that? You know, life has been wearing us down in this community, in this society, especially in the last two years. Um, and when it comes to our spiritual lives, the pursuit of following Jesus and, and doing this kingdom work we're called to has just been really difficult, right? I mean, we are all experiencing fatigue these days. There's no question about it. the last two years have been hard on all of us. Um, so it would stand to reason that sp spiritual fatigue would be par for the course in that regard. And again, to get very real and, and very specific with grassroots own context, and maybe for those who are brand new this morning who haven't been here for much, th this might be lost, but maybe that spiritual fatigue has to do with the departure of our lead teaching pastor, Pastor Keith, or the departure of others in our community over the last year. Or maybe it has to do with just the challenges of living in this isolation and, and loneliness that the pandemic brought on and all the restrictions brought about. Um, there's, all, there's a number of reasons for being spiritually fatigued. And they're legit. Absolutely. Um, and then if it's not spiritual fatigue, maybe it's uh, spiritual apathy. And so where fatigue is, I'm just tired of you know, pursuing this intentional Christian community. I'm tired of trying to orientate my life and my home around Jesus' kingdom. Apathy is, honestly, I don't even know if I care to do this anymore, right? Church, faith, spiritual matters, they, they just no longer hold the same weight in my life as they once did. That flame of passion for faith has started to flicker. 
And it could be any, other, any reason for causing that, a number of reasons. It could be for some, maybe you were offended by someone and your best way to handling that is just to kind of say, I don't care anymore. That could be sort of a, a method of self-preservation. Um, for others, it might be, you know what? There's just more interesting things in the world. You know, there's a whole series called Is It Cake that I would rather binge watch right now than deal with, you know, tending to the spiritual garden of my life. And seriously, have you been watching that show? <laughs> have you, like, the hamburger? <laughs> Come on. That's cake? Anyway. Um, so it could be anything. Spiritual, spiritual apathy can creep in in the same way as spiritual fatigue can. Um, so which is it? Is it consumerist Christianity? Is it spiritual fatigue? Is it a sense of apathy? Is it maybe combination of all three of these. And again, I'm not prescribing anything and saying that this is, you know, I'm not pointing fingers and saying that, but I'm just saying these are, these, are th- these are threads that keep coming up in conversation in my life with folks in this community and, and beyond as well, not just grassroots, but like every, everywhere. Um, and the reality is there isn't some three-step process to kind of fixing spiritual apathy, is there? There isn't a easy solution um, to address consumerism in our a consumerist mentality. These are problems, sure, but they are also part of being human, right? And there are seasons of ups and downs, and I think uh, we need to have grace with one another, and we need to um, go easy on each other with this. But also, I, I don't think any of us want to stay in these places, I think those of us who are serious followers of Jesus recognize that there is something more to this life of Jesus than just consuming spiritual stuff, right? And we know that we are called to something more than just leaning back on, I'm tired and I can't do anymore. There's a lot of work and there's a lot of hurt in this world. And you and I are the uh, harbingers of hope, the ones who carry that hope. We, there is a job for us to do. There's a lot of work for us to do in this world, right? So on the one hand, we should have grace. We should have compassion. On the other hand, let's not get comfortable and staying here. Let's find ways that we can move forward to. Okay, so now let's get back to this story of John the Baptist on the uh, banks of the Jordan River, talking to the religious leaders and seeing what he says. So again, John is essentially accusing these folks of assuming that they are just children of Abraham and they're just, they're fine. They, they believe that they're fine and they don't really have to worry about much regarding this, this forgiveness and this new way of living, right? Um, and this banking on their position, this relying on their status is uh, what John is calling them out for as well. And if we can relate to that posture of entitlement, then John has words to say to us as well here. And this is what he has to say. Remember, again, he's saying to the Jews who thought they could just bank on the role as children of Abraham, he says, out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. He doesn't need you. Like, there's nothing special here. Out of these stones, God can raise up Christians. He, he doesn't need us. He, he's not, we're not, there's not some sort of dependency that God has on us. Um, repent of the notion that we are uniquely special or qualified by virtue of our pronouncement of faith or of our uh, religious upbringing 
or reason X or whatever it might be about spiritual exhaustion or apathy or consumerism, because we're not, we're human, just like everyone else, except that we're all in need of God's grace and forgiveness. So what then does John propose to the Jewish leaders in the crowd? What is the solution? And that's what the crowd asks. In verse 10, he says, what should we do then? The crowd asks. What is it that we should do? You know, if following the law and, you know, resting on our laurels isn't enough to bring about transformation and a renewed vigor in our faith, well then, John, tell us, what's, what is going to do the job? Because I'm spiritually exhausted here. I'm really at the wit's end of my rope with the church, with dealing with fellow followers of Jesus, dealing with fellow Christians. I'm done. I am exhausted. Honestly, John, I don't really care anymore about this. So do you have a solution to to get me out of that? And this is what John says. And this is you know, brilliant because this is exactly the kind of um, thing that Jesus carries on in his ministry for the next three years of his life. This is what his message is all about. John says this. Again, a crowd asks him, what are we to do? He says, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Okay, so you're spiritually fatigued. You're resting on the laurels of what was, and you're wondering what you should do now. Start by sharing. Start by being generous with what you have. And then tax collectors, who were like worse than sinners, because tax collectors, uh, there were sinners, and then there were tax collectors, and tax collectors were in a separate category to sinners, which means they were worse than sinners. They came to John looking for this new way of living, this new way of uh, living in, this, in this, new, this new world that John and that Jesus is, is uh, about to usher in. And they came, and they said, they came to be baptized, and they said, teacher, what should we do? And John answers, don't collect any more than you're required to. You know, they had a tendency to extort from their fellow believers or their fellow Jews. They'd give to Rome what they had, and then they would take some more. And there was nothing the Jewish people could do about it. They had to. So John says, okay, start here. Just be honest with your work. And then some soldiers asked him, well, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And John's saying, do you see, do you, are you experiencing a problem with consumerism? Are you, are you feeling spiritually tired? Are you apathetic in your faith right now? Then start here. Share with other people. Feed someone. Stop gouging other people. Don't cheat on your taxes. Live an honest life. Don't try to get other people in trouble. Very, very practical advice, isn't it? They're, these are religious leaders who had an expectation that, oh, he's going to tell us a new sort of tradition, a new religious ritual that we should bring about. You know, we're ready. We're going to write that down. We're excited to, to follow that because that's all we've ever known is this temple system. And so, you know, maybe we have to sacrifice something different. And John's like, nope. It actually just starts very simply, very small, just share. You learn that in kindergarten. 
You can do it. Just share. Share out of your abundance. And again, these, these are just random examples because these are specific people who are asking him. And so he's like, okay, in your situation, this is what you need to do. In your situation, this is what you need to do. But he could have, had, he could have said any number of things. And like I said, this is basically what Jesus does for the next three years of his life. Right? His public ministry is all about learning, or about you know, sharing with these seekers, sharing with these followers of the, uh, uh, these Jewish people how to live a new way. Right, living a new way out of gratitude, out of the abundance of your gratitude, living in step with Jesus. And it looks like sharing. And it looks like not gouging, not cheating. All these simple, simple things. And, you know, verse 11, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what that looks like. The fruit that is in accordance with the repentance you're, you're confessing, looks like this. And that fruit begins as simple and unassuming. And it just, ha- just so happens to be the first step, friends, toward a life of renewed spiritual vitality, a fulfillment, a contentment with where you're at with Jesus toward figuring out a faith that's in step with who Jesus is so that you don't miss it with what, you don't miss what God is doing in our community, in our, in grassroots community, in Thunder Bay, that you are in step with that. That's the kind of thing that's gonna renew our faith. That's going to give us back a sense of energy. It's gonna energize us. Uh, Kate Bowler is a professor of Christian history at Duke Divinity School. She's also a Mennonite from rural um, Manitoba. And uh, she's got a devotional book right now that Rhonda and I have been reading. It's called Good Enough, 40-ish Devotionals for a Life of Imperfection. And honestly, I can't recommend it. It's just a brilliant book. Um, But in it, she tells this story about, um, her name is Adeline Moeller. And she's an older lady who faithfully, again, there's this small Mennonite community church, and if you've ever been to a rural Mennonite church, uh, you'll know that there's not a lot of musical um, uh, musicians and music, musical people in the community. And so uh, there's this lady, Adeline, who had faithfully for many, many years played piano in their little rural church. And one day, her husband of 56 years passes away. And they had a, a, ten, a very beautiful marriage, very happy relationship. Um, and so everyone kind of expected, oh, okay, you know, Adeline's not going to be here on Sunday. So we're going to have to just kind of soldier on ourselves without a piano player. And, you know, that's fine. But who should walk in Sunday morning? But Adeline Muller. And, you know, somebody exclaims, well, what are you doing here? And she says, what do you mean? I was on the schedule. I, I was on the calendar. I showed up. I was on the calendar. I showed up. I came to do a job that I had agreed to do. And she could have stayed at home that week, you know? She could have uh, grieved, which I'm sure she did many ways. No one would have questioned it, but she chooses to show up and do the job that's before her. And it's nothing profound. It's not a crazy story. Um, but she, she won't be noticed by anyone. Um, it's just this simple, small, 
unassuming gesture of showing up. The consistency. There's faithfulness in that. This is what Bowler calls small acts, great love. And I know Rhonda um, won't like me sharing the story, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and if I'm getting real with you this morning, I'll be honest, like we've been in a fairly spiritually dry um, season the last few months of our lives, uh, like so many of you in this room. And in the wake of the Ukrainian crises that we've all watched unfold on our news feeds or on the news at night, you know, there have been emotions I'm sure that you've experienced, anger, frustration, despair, uh, you know, a sense of hopelessness, and we definitely felt that. And that also has sort of wreaked havoc on our spiritual lives. I'll be honest, it's like there is a direct correlation between witnessing suffering and the nearness of God, if I can say that. And so we came across um, this Ukrainian catering company. My wife is a caterer, for those who don't know, and a Ukrainian company uh, that, or Ukrainian catering company that reaches, um, that is serving in Kiev right now and chose to stay in the city while, it's be- while they're being bombed all over the place. Um, they reached out to us asking for help, financial help. And so we got in our, our, our um, idea that maybe we should do a fundraiser for them. And so a couple of weeks ago, we did a virtual cooking class with all funds raised going to support these courageous caterers in Kiev. And no word of a lie, and I think I have a picture here as well. Um, can you throw that picture up, John? This is a, a photo. You can like look at the conditions in which they're preparing this food. And they are bringing food to soldiers. They are bringing food to... Um, people who are in bomb shelters or bus shelters who people are hiding. And it's like as tangible a help as you can possibly be doing. And so no word of a lie. And I'm not just saying this because it fits nicely with this message. But when we saw these pictures and they sent us some videos as well um, of what they did with the actual money that we were able to raise for them and the hope that that gave to the people in Kiev, it was just like shivers down our back. Right? It's like, wow, who knew? Right? It's almost as if this is how we are designed to live, to be in step with Jesus, is to do things like this. And don't hear me bragging about this or anything, because there are many, many, many times where I've just had an opportunity like this, and I've let it pass by because it didn't fit with what I wanted in the moment. So, you know, that's, that's the truth. But small acts... And great love. Like, how, what would it look like if we as a community, as individuals, did more of this kind of stuff? Right? If we found opportunities in our community that resonated with the heart of Jesus, and we took the initiative, yeah, it, it might cost you something. It might not be convenient, but trust me, that's going to fly in the face of consumerism. It's going to push you out of that, right? It's going to waken you up. It's going to cause you to stop being apathetic about your faith. And for years, I used to think that, you know, it had to be something big, right? It had, you know, um, I would... I would be um, really active in my faith and, and, and vibrant and all that stuff would come alive if I went and did missions overseas in Africa or, uh, you know, I entered full-time ministry 
or something big and significant so that others noticed. And, you know, that would, have, that would fix that encroaching apathy in my life. You know, and I just kept thinking like, oh, okay, someday down the road we'll do that. But right now I got to tend to my needs right here, right now. And one truth I've learned over the last couple of years of, of dealing in this is that if we're not willing to do the small, simple gestures of faithfulness that are right there in front of us, that are constantly knocking at the door, that are immediate, that don't get noticed, that don't produce some kind of kickback for us, right? If we're not willing to do that, then why do we think that all of a sudden, if we're put into a, 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 you know, a position of like full-time ministry or whatever, that things would change? They won't. Your character's not going to change overnight because of a different position. It's, a, it's the work of small things over many, many years. Small things with great love is key. And so this morning, we need to ask the question, where does this leave us as individuals? Where does this leave us as a community? And I, I don't know where you are specifically yet, but my hunch is, you know, getting back to these three sort of issues or challenges in the church, I think probably you all relate to one or two of them, maybe more, maybe all of them to some degree. Um, again, there are no easy answers to this, and I'm not saying start getting involved and that's going to fix everything. That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there is a good chance that when you trust, that when you share, when you uh, are honest, when you are doing these small things that the kingdom world, that this kingdom is made of, that the life in the kingdom um, looks like, when you start doing those things, there's a good chance that these other issues will take care of themselves. And so we start with simple, small, and unassuming actions. We work at honesty in our own character, at sharing, at giving of our resources, of our our time. Maybe it means stepping up and helping in the nursery right now. Or we mentioned earlier that there's a sign-up sheet for volunteering at the back of our at the pan, uh, info panel at the church. You know, whether it's pro presenter or sound or whether it's uh, children's church or whether it's being a greeter, there are all these simple, small, little roles that you and I can play in our community to, have a, to create a vibrant community, to bring back energy into this place. And you don't have to do it all. Just do one thing. So it's like once a month you're, you're committing to this. It's not a big deal. You're probably not going to get noticed. It's probably not going to be a lot of kickback for you. But if you're struggling with consumerism, if you're struggling with apathy or fatigue, then I think this is a good place to start. Because we can't rest on the laurels of, you know, whatever religious system, whatever faith system we grew up with. Life is just too hard. It's too gritty. It's tough, and it will beat us down until we've got nothing left. So instead, friends, we need a faith that is real, that is built through a life of doing. Amen? You can all say that. We need a, life, we need a faith that is built on a life of doing, not simply believing or trusting that everything that I've done in the past is good enough to carry me forward, because it probably won't. It's funny when you think about it, and this is as we close up, when you're feeling stressed and worn down um, in the world, the world says, you know what? Go and take a bath, a nice warm bubble bath 
Seek comfort. That's what you need. Or, you know, read this next self-help book. Um, Seek self-improvement. When you're feeling apathetic about whatever issue it is, the world says, you know, just step away from it. Go go for a hike in the bush. Uh, Do what makes you happy. When you're feeling unfulfilled, like something is missing in your life, the world says, go scroll in that. Go scroll Amazon and find something that's going to make you happy. You know, retail therapy. And sure, honestly, sometimes these approaches are just what you need. And I'm not bashing those things. I've partaken of them often. Um, There are seasons in our life where we really do need to step away from the pressures and we need to seek help for ourselves. But that is never meant, that is never intended to be where it ends, right? And so the Christian approach, the, the ironic way of Jesus is that in the midst of those challenges, those issues that we're dealing with, the solution inevitably is to lean in, not, not pull back. If you want to be restored, your, your faith increased, you want to find spiritual vitality, Jesus is saying, lean in and find a need and meet it. And this is part of the, the countercultural way that Jesus' followers are called to pursue. That when we are fatigued or apathetic or we're feeling all consumery, the anecdote isn't to just walk away in pursuit of more comfort, less conflict, less challenge, but rather get involved. Take part. Give of yourself in some meaningful way. Do something that will cost you something. Don't walk away. So are you spiritually fatigued this morning? I encourage you to lean in. Are you feeling like a consumer that you're just taking, 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 that you know, you're asking what's in it for me? Then I'm gonna challenge you. Find a need and meet it. Find someone else's need and help meet that need. Are you feeling apathetic? Serve someone. Serve here in this church. You may be amazed at how healing this is for the soul. And again, it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be much. In fact, God's kingdom is built on small things with great love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning we are um, grateful for this conversation between John and these religious leaders who we can find a lot of identity with, if we're honest, who would much rather lean back on their credentials, on all of, the, all of the things that give them status and stature and entitlement. And Father, we find ourselves in that situation often. But Father, like John proclaims this new way of producing fruit in line with repentance that he ushers in, that Jesus proclaims through his ministry. Um, I don't know why, but Father, that is really hard for us to put into practice. So this morning, would you nudge us just a bit? Would you encourage your hearts just a bit more, Father, that if we are feeling down, about to walk away, um, whatever it is, God, that you would encourage our hearts to lean in, to start with something small and unassuming 
recognizing we don't have to do it all, that we all can play a small part. And, um, and so I ask these things, Father, in your name. I ask these things trusting that you are doing a good thing in the grassroots community and in other churches in our, in our city as well. You are pulling us forward and causing us to be agents of healing and restoration wherever we find ourselves. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.